All right. My name is Chris Silkin. I'm from San Diego, California. Hi. I was raised in Bakersfield. Where the cows come from. Did someone moo at me? Who mooed? Brandon. I would fight you later, but you're twice my size. So I'm just going to let that one fly. Um, I have five kids. I'm up here with them, which is entirely too many if you ask me. But it's kind of late, right? They're already mine. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Daniel all week talking about a historical situation that has taken place in uh, the world's history. Here's where we can find ourselves sometimes when it comes to church, I think especially, which is, is it, can I stand on this? No. Don't stand on that, guys. That's sketch. It is kind of fun, though. It looks like a miniature skate park up here. Um, where we find ourselves is we can get really, uh, especially in church, if you're like me, I grew up going to Hume Lake, and I have a couple of pet peeves in my life. I don't know if you've got pet peeves in your life. Um, one of my pet peeves is like when you go to shake someone's hand, and instead of shaking your hand appropriately, they kind of put like a limp wrist in your hand. You know what I'm talking about? You, do you know what I mean? What's your name? Noella. Noel, Noella? Yeah. Come here real quick. Just if you guys sit in the front row, you're probably gonna get called on. Like so it's like this maneuver right here. It's called the dead fish handshake, okay? So when you go to give a nice, strong, masculine handshake, and then someone gives you like the princess peach, like kiss the royal ring, that's like a pet peeve. You can sit down, thank you. So that's like a pet peeve of mine. And we all have those different things. Um, like when people combine words together, it's called portmanteau. Like they say guesstimate. Those, I don't know why those words kind of, the word moist is irritating to me. But above all else, or ointment, that's fun to say, Francisco. Um, but I'll tell you one that I think it's, it's indicative for what we're talking about here, which is I hate with a passion for the, the world that we live in, whether you're what, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old in here, assuming you're a camper. Obviously, counselors are older than that and pastors and everything, but... Um, I grew up in the church, and I feel like I was like 22 years old before someone told me the difficult things that scripture had to offer. I feel like it was really late in my life. I, I feel like so often I was kind of coddled and protected and kind of nerf-balled about what this whole Jesus thing was about. Like if you, if you open up the text of scripture, like the, the, the I'll, I'll give you an example. The story of David and Goliath. You all know that story? Even if you're not a church kid, you know the story of David and Goliath because we use it all the time euphemistically to say like, you're, you're a David I and mean, you gotta go kill Goliath, right? It's like, go girl, you've got your own Goliaths. It's like, is your hair in a knot? That's your Goliath. You just comb it out. Or I don't really know how girls work, but just brush it. Do you brush out a knot? Who knows? No, there's, there's no conclusive evidence for what you do, actually. So that's the, right? But the David and Goliath story, like if you ever were in Sunday school, your teacher then gives you like this little coloring sheet, right, in black and white, and you color it in, and it's always like this <laughs> like 12-year-old with a rock in his hand, and then like a big, like frumpy giant. It's like, I'm here. And, and, but when you read the text, it's, it's a lot different. Like the Bible should be rated R. Like we, we only let kids color that part of the story. We, we don't let them finish the story. Because first of all, 
Why does David accept the bargain to fight Goliath? Because the king's daughter is going to uh, become his wife and gonna give him a lot of money. We never talk about that part of the story, right? This dude, and not only that, this guy had practice. It says he's killed a bear and a lion, so he was very confident that he was gonna kill this giant. And then he kills the giant. The giant falls over. By the way, when we say giant, he was six foot three in modern day. So I am literally six foot, I am as big as Goliath was, okay? Which means people were much shorter back then. So David, I don't know, it was like four foot four. So whoever's the shortest person I can't, I don't even know. You'll be right, it's like you killing me, okay? But then what does David do next? David goes up, takes out Goliath's sword, chops Goliath's head off, and then takes it to the foreign towns and mocks him with his dead head hanging from his fingertips. This is the next part of the story. And I grew up in church going, David and Goliath, he sung stone, hit him in the head and dead, dead. Whatever, I don't, that's, I made that song up in real time, okay? But, but then I feel like I got like to college and, and I was like, even in high school, I just walked around with this idea of, of like this kind of like the, the whitewashed, like a copacetic sanitized Christianity and people would come up to me and they would go, well, what, what do you have to say about the fact that God in the Old Testament commands the destruction of foreign nations? And I was like, no, he didn't. And they're like, yeah, and like he did. And I'm like, nah. And they're like, it's right here. God commanded the destruction of the Amalekites and, and they went and raised the city and killed everyone there. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And this was like everything. It was like, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Then be ready to die. If anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Well, I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to give all that up. And in this, my mind that Jesus was then the God that it was going to go, okay, well then give up most things. Like some negotiating hippie dude that like carries around lambs, makes rainbows sprout out of the ground, and he's just chill with everyone. And I thought, regardless of what I do or what I think or what I say or how I act or what I believe, that one day I'll get to heaven and Jesus is gonna be like, you were a disaster on earth. And I'd be like, yeah, but I tried hard, right? I'm a kind of a good person. I'm not, at least I'm not Hitler, right? And he's like, hey, come on in. Yeah, yes, you're right, you aren't Hitler. Like, like hell is one person, there's like a population of one, it's just Hitler and everyone else is gonna be fine. Like, <laughs> It was like, ein Minuten bitte, or whatever, whatever he says. That guy was the worst. Anyway, <laughs> I've successfully made a Hitler joke in my first sermon. 10 points for Gryffindor. Okay, so, um, no, Hufflepuff sucks. <laughs> Pansies. Okay, anyway. But I feel like, I, it, it's like people dictated for me how much I could handle. Like, you know, um, I've got an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old, okay? Peyton Harper, Brady, Leo Finley. It's a lot of kids in a very short period of time. And um, like when the kids are first old enough to understand like where babies come from, you just ask, like if you ask my three-year-old Leo, okay, his real name's Leonidas, but we call him Leo. You ask Leo, where do babies come from? He's gonna go, mommy's tummy. And that's a sufficient answer, right? If a three-year-old, honestly, if a three-year-old knows that babies come from mommy's tummy, it's like, good for you, right? That's, 
That's successful. Any preschooler who says that, you go, that's good enough. Now, my, uh, it, it, let's say that Leo grows up and then he turns the ripe old age of 13, right? Or 14. How many 14-year-olds in the house? Okay, I'm gonna hope that if your hand's up right now and I say, where do babies come from? I don't need the full explanation, but you should know more than mommy's tummy, right? There's more to it than that, right? Like women don't just walk around and then go, what is I am with child? <laughs> like that only happened once and her name was Mary and that was Jesus, okay? So, so what happens? As you grow up, your understanding of where it's got to mature with you. And the more that you grow, the more that you understand. And, the, and again, a 14-year-old's explanation of it, it might be a little bit crude or crass, but at least it's going to get to the point of the matter. Now, if you ask someone who's like a pre-med major where babies come from, you're going to get a long-winded and far more accurate response. But if you ask a doctor or an OBGYN or some professor of the category of biology where babies come from, they're gonna start using words like alleles and chromosomes and GT. They're just gonna start, you're just gonna go, what? That's too much. The reason that I'm giving that explanation is I think one of my pet peeves, and maybe it's one of yours too, is that sometimes the church has decided that you're going to be a proverbial three-year-old when it comes to the stuff of Jesus. That we're gonna keep kind of spoon feeding you this idea of Jesus that's not in scripture. The reason that it's not helpful for you is that you're gonna grow up and you're gonna start asking a lot of questions. You're gonna start running into life, real life. People are gonna start dying around you. Cancer is going to strike. Your generation is the most messed up generation in terms of mental health in the history of mankind. You're gonna have to justify that with yourselves. You're gonna have to figure out why that's the case. You're gonna have to look at scripture and look at the God of the universe and you're gonna have to start asking some bigger questions. And if you have a three-year-old understanding of an infinite God at the age of 18, you're gonna think that the things of God are for children. You're gonna think that faith is something that little kids do, but now you're too mature and grown up for it. This is where I was when I was your age. This is why when I was your age, I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the things of God. I didn't believe in the Bible. I thought that it was a, a bunch of uh, misinformed people that just wanted some hope for after they die. Grandmas made it up so that they could think that they were gonna see grandpa again, but they weren't because when you die, that's it. That's the end. That's everything is done at that point. And I had to walk through what I'm sure a lot of you are walking through right now, which is, do I actually believe this? Do I actually understand who God is? Or have I been force-fed and spoon-fed this ideology over and over again? And maybe you've been to other camps before, or other systems or other programs. Maybe you're not a church kid. Maybe you're new to the Jesus conversation. Maybe you would identify as an atheist or agnostic, or you, you, you might believe that there is a God, but you don't think that people should actually worship him because you hate him, because he's awful, because you, you can't stand the way that Christians act around you. I, I just, my, my point is that my hope is that when you're in this space, particularly when we're having a time of discussion together, when I'm teaching, that all those things are appropriate and that that's okay. And that God's not afraid of your doubts or your fears or your cynicism or your concerns or your critiques of him. He's not concerned about those things. But also that you would 
like we talked about earlier, allow your understanding of God to mature with what the scripture actually says rather than this cultural expectation of who Jesus is that's been fed to you from everyone you've ever met. Not everyone likens themselves a medical doctor, but everyone you've ever met likens themselves a theologian. Everyone you've ever met has an opinion about God, even if they've never opened the book. Everyone that you've ever met thinks something about Jesus, and yet if we pulled this room, I'll bet less than 2% of you have actually read the story of Jesus in its entirety. I could ask you questions about who he is, and you wouldn't be able to answer him, but you have an emotional response when I say the word Jesus, and it might be loving, it might be hateful, it might be disenfranchised, it might be bigoted. I don't know what it is. But what I am, the, the, the commitment I want to make to you that I'm hoping you make for me back is my commitment to you is I'm going to talk to you like the adults that you are. I'm going to say the difficult things of the scriptures. I'm going to present Jesus to you accurately, and it's going to offend you. I'm going to talk to you about what the Bible says. It shouldn't be rated G or PG. The coloring sheets, if you just did page-by-page page coloring sheets, you would have to censor about half of them, Right? There's whole books of the Bible that people can't read until certain ages in other cultures. It is bananas. But I am going to present to you, my hope is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would get an accurate understanding as adults of the story of Jesus and that you would respond appropriately. That you would get who God is. Uncensored, unfiltered, talk to you like adults, difficult things, you will get offended at some point. But my aim and my objective, like a doctor, is to give you an accurate diagnosis of where you are through the power of the, the community around you, your youth pastors, your counselors, that you would accurately see yourself the way that God sees you. Not the way that your neighbor does, not the way that your mom does, not the way that culture does, but that there's only one true opinion in the whole universe that matters, and it's what does God think about you? A great theologian once said, when you hear the word God, the first thing that comes to your mind is the most telling thing about who you are. When you hear the word God, what comes to your mind in that moment is perhaps the most important thing about any human being that's ever lived. What is God to you? Think about it. If there is no God, if when I say the word God, you think of a blank space, you think that all of Christianity and all of religion is just some hoax. It's an opioid for the masses. It's not to be believed because intellectualism has done away with it. Darwin has nullified it. Marxism and Freudian belief systems have done away with the idea of a need for God. As Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. If this is what you believe, and this is what I believed until I actually studied for myself. Now I'm a trained apologist. I'm a professor of theology and apologetics. Um, and I, I teach this, and I'm also a senior pastor in San Diego, California. But I sit, maybe this is where you're sitting, where you become critical of the whole thing. You become cynical because you know too many Christians. And they claim to be following Jesus, but you know exactly what they do. So you've rejected Jesus on the altar of his followers, which makes no sense. That would be like if you were walking down the street, and some dude peed in a Starbucks cup, and you picked it up, and then you drank it, and you went, I'm never going back to Starbucks. That would make no sense. But we do this with the church. We watch someone misuse who Jesus is, and then we go, I'm never going back to church because this person has misrepresented who Jesus is to me. Don't you understand there's something there? If I go to a pizza place and I have bad pizza, I never go, I'm never having pizza again. What do I think? That's bad pizza. I'm never going back to this pizza place again. I might even go back to that pizza place again because I'll give them the benefit of going, maybe you had a bad night. But what do we do with church? 
One Christian hurts us and we reject the whole belief system. It doesn't make sense. We wouldn't do that anywhere else. I want to present to you accurately. And my hope is this. As I'm walking around camp, you're going you're gonna to know it's me because there's going to be five little blonde kids following me around like lemmings, just wherever dad goes. And one of them's named Brady. He's got glasses on. He will always talk to you because he doesn't know what a stranger is, which is concerning to me. But he just thinks everyone is the best all the time. So Leo will set your shoes on fire. Harper's the kindest person that you've ever met. Peyton's really into rules. And he's in that like kind of thinks he's a big kid now. So the more that you can treat him like that, that would be great. And then my daughter, Finley, she has little pigtails and she has rarely knows what's happening, but she's along for the ride and she's a happy camper. So as you see us around, you'll see that. But as you're interfacing, as we're asking questions and thinking through this thing, here's, what I, here's a commitment that I want to make to you. My commitment to you is that I'm going to teach you the difficult things and present Jesus in a way that is accurate, difficult, offensive, but true. My commitment that I hope that you'll make to me is this. Your knee-jerk response to the things that I'm going to say, don't start any of your criticisms or cynicisms or retorts with the questions or with the idea, well, I think that God, because ultimately what you think about God doesn't change anything about who God actually is. That would be like if you went to a room that was completely blue and started writing the word red on the wall. It wouldn't change the blueness of the room. You would just look like you didn't know what was going on. My, uh, my question and response that I'm going to ask you is that as you hear these things, you wouldn't resort back to what we do naturally, which is, well, what do I think as if I'm the God of the universe? That's why the question of what comes to mind when you think about God is so important. Because if you think that God doesn't exist, then you're the God of the universe. Do you understand that? If you think God doesn't exist, then you have in that moment become the most sentient, important, your indulgence, your thoughts, your perceptions, what you think about life is superior. If you think God is a vindictive judge, then you might be someone, when I say the word God and you think of a vindictive judge, you might think that there's just this big eye in the sky who keeps screaming, get off my lawn all the time. And God just watches everything you do and everything you think. And he's ready just to snipe you and take you out whenever you think anything wrong or do anything bad. And you don't understand the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. All you have is this misunderstanding of who God is. But some of us, when we think of God, we think of this idea of this bodyguard that just protects us from all harm and danger. And when he doesn't, we're apt to go, forget you then. If you're not gonna protect me, then I don't want anything to do with you. But I think there's a more important question than what comes to your mind when you say the word God, and that's this question. What do you think comes to God's mind when he thinks about you? The God of the universe thinks all things at all times. He's not temperamental. He doesn't have good and bad days. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. That means he knows you. The book of John chapter one says, he has made all things. He knit you together in your mother's womb, the, the psalmist says. So God knows you. I, you need to understand that. You're not one in a face of a crowd. You're not in a face in the crowd to God. He knows you each by name. He formed you. So he thinks about you. And what do you think he thinks about when he thinks about you? As we enter into this conversation in the book of Daniel, I kind of want to just start by making sure that we're on equal playing field here. 
There's not a lot of time this morning to cover all that I want to cover. We've got a lot of stuff, to, but, but I, I want to start by prompting this question of what do you think about God and what do you think God thinks about you? Let's jump into the text here, Daniel chapter 1. Um, so I told you before I'm an apologist. That doesn't mean that I say sorry all the time, even though I do. But an apologist means um, someone who tries to create an intellectual defense for the Christian faith. Right? So if you grew up in a household where your parents or maybe someone that you know says, well, God wants us to have blind faith so he doesn't give us any evidence, that's completely patently wrong. That's not the case whatsoever. I believe that through, through biology, through astrophysics, through chemistry, through neurology, I believe that every field of science, if you do your due diligence, will point to the existence of God and his interception in the universe, his intercession in the universe. I believe he's, he's verified in archaeology, he's verified through prophecy, he's verified through history. I believe this with every fiber of my being, and not because I'm some psychophantic, brainless dude. It's because I didn't believe there was a God, and I was convinced to the alternative. I'm going to start by giving you a little presentation here, just quickly as we jump into the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, for so many of us, has resigned itself because you colored this picture in school. When I say Daniel, you think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? We don't really know where Daniel takes place. We don't really know what else is in the book of Daniel. We don't know what the book of Daniel is for. We only know one story, Daniel in the lion's den. But here's what you must understand. Sometimes we approach the text and we think it as some sort of an allegory that this book was written and it's a whole bunch of cautionary tales so that we wanna be better people and make less mistakes and make sure that when God looks at us, we're practicing everything properly, our sexuality's all in line, the way we treat people is always good, right? And so some dude made up a whole bunch of stories in history so that everyone would fall in line. Listen, friend, if you think that, you haven't read the text because the text brings people who are adulterous murderers and calls them men after God's own heart because God has forgiven and redeemed them. The Bible takes people who are infinitely jacked up and gives them the ability to be forgiven and to be freed. It makes the people who are high in culture and brings them low. That's the whole story of Daniel. Kings and rulers and principalities and those who cover and govern the world are made into madmen and people who are beasts and wild and those peasants who are disenfranchised, who have been enslaved, become those who God shows favor to. It's a book about the sovereignty of God who rules all things. That's why he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You got a king? God's their king. You got a Lord? God's their Lord. You got a president? God's their king. He rules all. He sees all. Nothing has ever happened that doesn't cross God's desk first, including the book of Daniel. But do not think that this is a story that God told us to make us. This is actual history. In fact, let me read you an article really quick. And I'm going to read you the article before I tell you who wrote it. Okay, here's what it says. Here's the title. Archaeologists find evidence of Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem as told in the Bible. Archaeologists excavating on Mount Zion in Jerusalem have uncovered evidence of the Babylonian conquest of the city appearing to confirm the biblical account of its destruction. Academics from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte made significant findings, including ash deposits, arrowhead, broken pieces of pots, and lamps, not to mention a steel that has the picture of King Nebuchadnezzar on it. Simon Gibson, co-director of the university's Mount Zion archaeological product, 
said that this is the first time archaeologists have uncovered signs of the elites appearing to confirm biblical descriptions of Jerusalem's wealth prior to the conquest of 587 and 586 BC. For archaeologists, this can mean a number of different things. It could, uh, sorry, ash, ashy deposits removed from the ovens, or it could be localized burning of garbage. All we know is that it confirms the biblical account of the story of Daniel. The team noted that the recovered arrowheads, known as Scythian arrowheads, are fairly commonplace, and now we know that these should all be dated to the same time as the siege of the Babylonians. This evidence points to the historical conquest of the city of Babylon by the only major destruction we have in Jerusalem, 587 to 586 BC. This was written by a Christian group called CNN. <laughs> if you didn't catch my satire there, there is not a more counter-Christian group in the world than the media, in particular CNN, and they're forced to write this. Why? Because this is what we found. There's been 10 different discoveries over the past 60 years that have confirmed this account. There's one that tells of the siege of Jerusalem. There's one that names, did you guys know this? I bet you didn't. The Bible says that the last king in the Babylonian empire was different than what archaeologists thought the last king was. And so culture said, you biblical people have it wrong. We know the actual last king until we found a rock and it gives a list of the kings that dates back thousands and thousands of years. And guess what? It affirms the biblical account. Now what archaeologists thought. Now all of archaeology believes that the last king is the same as what the Bible says is the last king. My point is this. This is not the ramblings of a hoax. This story took place. It took place right by modern day Baghdad in Iraq you can go visit this place today. The Babylonian ruins are right there. A man named Saddam Hussein went and found Nebuchadnezzar's palace and thought, this is a neat place for a palace. And he loved Nebuchadnezzar's story. So he built a palace on top of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. You can go there. You can walk the halls where these events took place. You can go visit them today. This is historical fact. Don't approach this going, that's an interesting story. I wonder what we're supposed to glean from it. It's, <laughs> it's not a story meant to be gleaned from. It is history that you need to decipher what we need to do with. Here's what it says. Very short passage this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, we now know that that's exactly in the year 605 BC, which is when the first siege of Jerusalem happened. This is history. Uh, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So besieging means... You've got a city right here, and in order for that city to have food and water and animals and trade, they would have to go outside the city walls to go find that stuff. So to besiege it means you put your army around it so that no trade could come in and no one inside could come out without dying. So after a while, the city would go, we're hungry. And they would either fold and say, that's it, we quit, or they would all die inside. This happened in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant military commander, as we can tell from history. He besieges Jerusalem, and he starts to take from Jerusalem the best and the brightest. His plan is, I'm going to take the most beautiful, well-informed, able-bodied Israelites, and I'm going to come and make them slaves in Babylon. I'm going to teach them the ways of Babylon and the things we do in Babylon and the way that we think in Babylon and the way that we pray in Babylon. He renames all of these people. Their names used to be beloved of God, blessing of God, follower of God, and he changes their names into follower of Baal, lover of Asherah, into foreign god pagan names. 
He's trying to indoctrinate them in Babylon. So they stop thinking like Israelites. They stop thinking about like God's people and they start thinking like Babylonians. So he takes the best and the brightest, all of the athletes, all those who are wise, the sages in 605 and takes them over to Babylon. Then you know what Nebuchadnezzar does? He leaves Jerusalem and says, I'll go do this again after they've rebuilt themselves and I'll go take another crop of the best people. He does this two more times until in 586 BC, he crushes the whole city, which is where the destruction of the temple happens in 586 BC. You can still go to Jerusalem and watch the destruction of the temple. You can go underground. You can see the original stones as they were during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of this area. Okay? So, as such, we find these people who are part of God's chosen people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and now they're taken into a foreign land and the foreign land says, we are gonna knock the Yahweh out of you. We are gonna teach you how to be like us. You come be part of our culture, you eat our food, you drink our wine, you think our thoughts, you learn our language, you are going to become like us. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and a whole bunch of other Israelites have to make a decision. Am I going to become like the Babylonians around me so that I can fit in, I can be well-liked, and I can prosper in this place? Or am I going to remain a citizen of my home country, a follower of Yahweh, true to my, name, my, my actual namesake? Am I going to be a follower of God or am I going to be a follower of this? This is what we need to understand modern-day culture with the few minutes I have left. We love the tribalism of modern-day America, right? How many different ways does the modern American teenager qualify themselves? I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm an ENTJ. I am, um, I am black and blue dress. Um, I heard Yanni when you hear Yanni. Um, I am, I'm more of a classic Disney more than like the modern one. So I'm more old school Beauty and the Beast. Live action remakes can go die for all I care. Um, this, right? And we, lo- we like have all these identifiers for ourselves. I'm left wing. I'm right wing. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm independent. I'm libertarian. I'm more office. I'm more parks and rec. I'm, uh, I- I'm really into a breaking bad. Okay, well, I'm really into stranger things. Well, I believe it, right? We all, we, we qualify ourselves a thousand different ways. And, and here's the idea that I want to finish with. When you stop asking culture who you are, and they try to define you every single way that they possibly can, the Bible says it's, it uses, even though this isn't an allegory and it's not illustrative in its purposes, the Bible uses the idea of Babylon to dictate any culture that says, forget God. We don't want anything to do with God. We're over this whole thing. This is modern day America. Modern day America has, in the past 150 years, made a decision to completely nullify God and culture. You can't talk about him in schools. You can't bring your Bible certain places. You can't pray before any kind of a game. You can't, have, you can't teach even proper history if it confirms something about scripture. You can't teach creationism as a legitimate uh, avenue of science, even though the majority of all scientists are theistic. 51% of all scientists polled in 2016 are theists. But you can't teach creation in any kind of a public school setting. Why? Because we live in Babylon. 
we might look at, these people were some messed up people. They were sacrificing children. They, were, they had really harsh penalties. If you stole something, they cut your hand off. They uh, readily, if you were too weak, they would use you for the sex trade. They would take advantage of you. You had no individual rights. Women were used, abused, and thrown out. They were commodities to be traded amongst. This is what Babylon is. What is modern day America? It is not any different. The sanctity of life, the value of human individual persons, the idea that you have to qualify your own identity and you have to justify your existence. Think about it this way. In the last 20 years, as we've progressed more sexually, we've progressed more in terms of technology, we've gotten rid of God in all of our different statutes, we can now say we are a post-Christian nation. We don't think in a Judeo-Christian mindset anymore. Whatever you think is right is right for you. There's no such thing as absolute truth except for the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. Everything is subjective. Whatever you think is right. You think you're a frog? Do you really believe it? Then you're a frog. You really think you're this? You really believe it? Then you're this. We have nullified truth in our culture completely. And so what would we expect? Here was the promise. If we can get rid of God, we'll finally be free. If we can throw off the chains of religion, we'll get to be humans again. We'll get to do what we want, when we want, with who we want, with no repercussions. We'll get to think how we want. We'll get to practice sexuality how we want. We'll get to do whatever we want to do. It's going to be great. Let me tell you how the experiment is going. Just in the last 20 years, with the explosion of social media and the movement of our ability to be whoever we want, nullified of God, as Christianity uh, globally is growing, but in America it's shrinking, what's happening to American adolescents? What is, what is, the, what is the current state of, you, of your people? Here's what it is. Today, which is far more progressive, far less Christian, and far less indoctrinated in Scripture, today when we should have all these promises of progress, you are 75% more likely to commit suicide than someone your age was 20 years ago. You are three times more likely to have mental illness. You are four times more likely to struggle with anxiety and depression. You are infinitely more likely to struggle with some sort of gender dysphoria than people were 20 years ago. And it's not because these things are just starting to show up or we're starting to talk about them. Culture is changing. It's morphing. It's getting different. And we keep on the same track. Well, the more we get rid of God, the better things are going to be. The experiment has failed. You have to be willing to call what's happening in our culture for what's happening in our culture. You can't. It's white noise. You walk around in your schools, you walk around in culture, you listen to the slogans, you watch the commercials, and it's just white noise, right? I use white noise at night so that I don't have to hear my kids every single noise that they make all the time, right? You just gotta go. Is there a dog barking outside? <laughs> I don't know. Because I have muted it by just consistently consuming the white noise. Friend, let me tell you something. This is the status of a modern-day teenager, high school student in America. You've, you have been so freaking deceived by the white noise of culture that just wants to go, don't worry, man, you're good. Just keep doing your thing. It's all good. But you don't even ask the big questions of life. Are you a good person? What's going to happen when you die? Is life all there is? What is justice? What's good? What's bad? Who gets to dictate that? Is God real? Is he not? Does it matter? No, 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 no. Shh, 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 shh. Just keep scrolling, bro. 
Stop asking such gnarly questions. This is San Diego culture for you. Who cares, man? Just like whatever, surf and stuff. Like, and here's the danger. The danger is you're going to go to sleep and not be paying attention to the white noise of culture. You're going to wake up, you're going to be 72, and you're going to die. And you'll never have faced the difficult questions of life that God wants you to participate in. And that's the beauty of Hume Lake. The beauty of Hume Lake Christian camps is, it's, is it cuts through the white noise of culture. And it says, are you ready to have a real conversation about the things in life that actually matter? And you might think to yourself, I'm only here because someone dropped out last minute. I'm only here because my mom made me. I'm only here because my friend dragged me here. That's not why you're here. God is sovereign over the book of Daniel. He's sovereign over the Babylonian kings. He's sovereign over everything that happens there. And you're not here by mistake. You're here because one day you're gonna die and meet God face to face. You've got a divine appointment with the king, the king who oversees all things. And on that day, there's only two groups of people. There's not 48 qualifiers and 67 identifiers. There's only two. Are you a follower of Jesus, a child of the Most High God, or are you an enemy of Jesus? There's no third direction. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral party in God's kingdom. There are only two. The book of Romans makes this very clear. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, Romans 5.17, Romans 5.23. There are only two parties on that last day. Those who Jesus will look at and say, Come in, my child. I know you and you are mine. And those that Jesus will say, who are you? Away from me, evildoer, and face destruction. This is the difficult thing of scripture. But if you think that you can have no opinion on the God issue and you're gonna be good because you weren't Hitler, I've got a news flash for you. That's not the way the text gives us permission to think. So as we dive into the story of Daniel and a man who lived in a world that was culturally opposed to God, I want you to insert yourselves into the story because make no mistake, you live in Babylon. The question is, are you going to become Babylonian? Are you already Babylonian? And do you have any interest with joining the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the only real true way of living? That's the question we're gonna face this week. Would you pray with me? God, as we, as we enter into your text, as we enter into these stories, verified by history, archeology, span and the evidence of truth, we know that you're not a God who's afraid of our doubts, our fears, our concerns, our, our trivial questions, whatever it might be. We know that when you look on this room, you don't just see a blanket of faces and, and, a, and a room full of people, but you know us individually. You know what each of us is struggling with, what each of us is growing. There's something, we are Babylonian or we are in your kingdom. There's no third direction. We are either your child or we are your enemy. And God, my hope would be that you'd at least clarify that for us so that if we decide, you know what? I want to be an enemy of God. At least we would know where we stand. At least we would be able to intellectually come to that conclusion rather than just sit in the white noise of culture and never have any conclusion about who you are. May this be a week of honesty, of truth, and for sure, fun and enjoyment and community. But God, may we do real business with you to understand where do we stand in this grand scheme of Babylon. In your name we pray, amen.